Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we've got a listener-sponsored episode. Our topic today comes courtesy of Io as a gift to her boyfriend, Alan, who she calls, quote, her favorite fellow anthropologist. And Alan and Io, we're really sorry this episode has taken so long to come out. Sorry. But we, we hope you still like each other. Yep. Oof. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah, so we've been trying to work out details of some really fantastic interviews related to this topic, but scheduling has been tricky. So Sorry. we're, we're going to have a two-part situation here. This week, we will discuss some archaeological studies of indigenous American foodways and talk about some of the methods that archaeologists use to learn about diet. But we also want to talk about sovereignty and how important food is as a cornerstone of culture. And to do that, since we don't want to be just two white people reporting research second or third hand, nope. we want to talk to a guest expert. And we're working we're working on that part. Yep. So, Io, thank you so much for your support. And if you listeners also want an episode on a topic of your choosing that will ideally come out in a relatively timely fashion, life happens, go to thedirtpod.com, click on the news link at the top of the page, and then on the link that says sponsor an episode. We do the research, record the episode, and you can brag about it forever and ever. Okay? Okay. Here we go. Okay. So, What's so special about looking at food? Mm. Well, there's the obvious fact that people got to eat and learning about the ways that groups use the resources around them to feed themselves can tell us a lot. And it's not just about diet and nutrition. Thinking about food is also thinking about social organization. Wow. Yeah. So when we talk about pre-agricultural groups in archaeology, a lot of discussion centers on the idea of division of labor. For a long time, the basic notion was that males in a group typically performed tasks like hunting, uh, which took them further afield, while females stayed closer to home and did the gathering and the foraging and the child care. This is certainly true in many modern hunter-gatherer groups like the Hadza of northern Tanzania, or as they say in Tanzania, Tanzania. Do they? Um, a Tanzanian colleague says Tanzania. Interesting. Like, That's nice. That. Yeah, so yeah. the Hadza are often sort of the the prototypical modern hunter gatherer group. So they're they're usually the ones referenced. Um, you know, when you start of talk about modern people okay. who who have this they're lifestyle, like it's a, often the Hadza. The like they're a, a common like ethnographic subject. Is yeah, that, like yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. But as with nearly everything in the past, it's always more complicated. Um, We can't always use modern hunter-gatherers as the perfect model for how this lifestyle worked in the past. And over the past hundred years or so, there have been various shifts in archaeological thinking that have dealt with the concept of division of labor very, very differently. 
For example, um, this is taken from a literature review article by Sarah Groff um, called Archaeological Studies of Cooking and Food Preparation. And it says, quote, Feminist archaeology brought the notion of social difference and the treatment of different social groups to the forefront of archaeological thinking, and research on cooking and food preparation is emerging, in part, from this tradition. This does not mean that all archaeologists who study cooking and food preparation take a feminist position or even discuss gender in their research. It does mean that work on cookery and food preparation concerns feminist theory by the simple fact that due to their own biases, most researchers assign cooking and other household chores automatically to women. The concern also stems from the neglect of culinary labor prior to these current studies because such labor was considered unimportant. In yeah. fact, yeah, right. In fact, archaeologists working on Pueblo sites routinely discarded artifacts of women's culinary labor. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that was kind of involuntary. <laughs> uh, similar acts of discarding cooking ware, sometimes described as crudware i know that hurts me <laughs> but also sounds like something that you would say to like describe dishes i clean my dishes thank you oh, okay very, no, fine Des no describe actually my dishes you know what the next morning though when i go to clean out my cat's wet food dish yeah. that is that is crudware and yeah. it's gross <laughs> um so similar acts of discarding cooking ware, sometimes described as crud, crud ware, have to, happened in many excavations around the world. Studies of cooking and food preparation, in some cases, are dealing with these problems of omission and opening the discussion to the wider archaeological community. It's kind of like what we've already talked about with burials, where you've got burial goods that in the past have been assigned to either men or women. And it's not like skeletons have little pink bows on them. Yeah, you know, it's... Um, it's a question of often of excavator bias or of expectation. Well, and also talking about burials, the things that might be buried with people that aren't um, shiny. Yeah. Crud so, like, <laughs> exactly. Um, so fortunately, things like cookware are no longer being tossed out as unimportant because it turns out from those we can learn some very cool things. Um. For instance, <laughs> like you're talking to like, which is not a bad thing, but you sound like you're talking to me as like a first grader. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's just because you're so sleepy. I think I'm, I'm like very sleepy trying to like bring the energy up. I know. I'm, um, I'm really enjoying this, though. <laughs> Keep going. Um, for instance, this article was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Panos. In 2019. Um, and it's from John Kantner, uh, David McKinney, Michelle Pearson, and Shaza Wester. And, and the article is entitled Reconstructing Sexual Divisions of Labor from Fingerprints on Ancestral Pueblan Pottery. Yeah. So I'm going to read a quote from it. Well, a series of very long quotes. Sorry. Gonna... <laughs> I excerpted. Jeez. All right. I'm going to read some quotes it's a, here. It's, it's a good study. It's a cool study. <laughs> Partial fingerprints were extracted from a sample of archaeological ceramics from what is now northern New Mexico. The fragmented vessels were recovered during investigations of an ancestral Puebloan community that was primarily occupied in the 10th and 11th centuries CE, a period associated with the growth of an influential socio-ideological system centered on the monumental center of Chaco Canyon, the history of which impacted a large part of the U.S. Southwest. We got to do Chaco Canyon sometime soon anyway an episode 
It's so cool. What did we do? We talked about ancestral Puebloans, but we kind of did an overview of multiple sites. And I think Chaco deserves its own. Okay. um, Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I do not disagree. Mm. Um, Continuing with my quotes. One of the many debated questions about the Chaco era is the degree to which labor became specialized in the role of gender in religious, sociopolitical, and economic organization. Because certain kinds of pottery, known as corrugated wares, were created by pinching coils of clay paste together, the resulting fingerprint impressions can be used to determine the sex of the potter and thereby make inferences about the organization of Chacoan labor through time. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase the next little section here because it's very very jargony um and i'll try not to use my preschool teacher voice which apparently (laughs) i didn't realize i had it's okay (laughs) so modern forensic studies across different biological populations indicate that within a particular fingerprint some ridges especially those on the outer edges tend to be consistently sized and clearly distinct by sex only a oh i see what you did here anna only a handful yeah mm, (laughs) of archaeological studies have focused on fingerprints and ceramics since it's tough to get a clear print um, the sample size of available fingerprints is pretty small Um, back to this article quote one notable pottery type relevant to this study is corrugated cooking ware the name reflecting a surface texture created by the potters manually pinching the coils of clay paste together Studies suggest that this production method provided a number of advantages, including easier handling, better temperature control, and increased use life. Thousands of these pots were imported into Chaco Canyon from communities dozens of miles away that produced them in large quantities. So, Amber, remember way back when you took that one ceramics class that one time? Did they have you coil something by making a snake out of clay and then yes, coiling that, it? Yes, that's my... Um, Your little ashtray? bowl situation yeah it's a bowl it's not an ashtray i was in seventh grade Um, (laughs) i don't know your life um well yeah imagine that that i made i made that by by coiling i made some corrugated wear well no so imagine doing that and then in some instances if you start with the coiled snake form of building up your your actual pottery form you may smooth those coils together but these actually take each coil and the one immediately above and below it and pinch those together in lots of little tiny little pinches. So actually kind of, if you look at the picture that I put on the script, it's almost like a fish scale pattern. It looks, it looks kind of baskety. Yeah, it does. And each one of those little divots is a fingerprint pinch. So, so the actual, even though there are these little pinches, there are hundreds of them across the surface of a single pot so the the likelihood of getting a clear print from those is higher than what you might see in like a smoothed pot right Um, so you got all these little probably not all of them are clear prints because i I imagine that some of it gets smudged and skewed and whatever but um yeah so this is where the, the fingerprints are coming from is this actual technique is conducive to leaving fingerprints did the authors of that study mention anything about possibly being able to identify individual artisans? Uh, if they did, I didn't catch it because okay. I didn't read the article in any great depth. I, okay. I, I read it once and went, huh, cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I was just wondering if that's something that I bet you could, the, if you like created a database and then compared individuals. Yeah. I bet hmm. you could. Well, that study had some unexpected conclusions. 
first of all, both sexes were involved in the production of Chaco corrugated wares. But, 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 the data suggested some additional patterns. First, when the researchers looked at the pottery chronologically, they saw a trend indicating that older corrugated vessels were produced primarily by males, while later production included an equal number of both sexes. Uh, the researchers conclude, quote, this apparent shift to equal numbers of male and female potters as the Chaco phenomenon became more elaborate is suggestive. During this later period, Chaco Canyon had become a major consumer of pottery, with many surrounding areas likely overproducing vessels to be transported to the Central Canyon. It may be that this growing demand necessitated, almost literally, all hands on deck, to produce enough corrugated pots to meet both local community needs and the external demand, end quote. So there we go. A key point. Sex-based task division is fluid. Roles aren't set in stone. Just like today, sometimes if you need people to do a task, you get whoever is available. Yeah. So that was a really cool study. And I love the evidence that they used. Just, you know, it's like a kind of a coincidence of this particular pottery type that that particular um, type of evidence was available. So I thought that was especially neat. And hey, you know what else is neat? The products and services that support this podcast. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we are back. And for this next bit, I found a really neat resource from the CDC, Center for Disease Control. No, it's not about coronavirus. It is a collection of interviews with activists, educators, and others within several indigenous American communities. And it's called Traditional Foods in Native America, colon, a compendium of stories from the indigenous food sovereignty movement in American Indian and Alaska Native communities. So we'll link to the file in the show notes. And it may seem weird and sketchy that this particular publication is related to the CDC, but it's actually a wider study having to do with um, instances of heart disease and diabetes in uh, people who go from sort of communities with traditional indigenous foodways to a more Western diet and the impact that that has on their health. Oh, okay. So it was, it was, it's part of this big publication, but this was one small bit of it that was really cool. 
So ever since I was a little kid and I went to nature camp, I've always been fascinated with the idea of wild foods and foraging. I've done a little bit of it since I moved here to California because it's warm and there's stuff to collect all the time. But to learn from a real expert, I recommend that y'all check out the work of my buddy and colleague, Kevin Smith. He's got a blog about his like own foraging. What? Like no, <laughs> no, not like mall rats. Shockingly, there's more than one man in the world named Kevin Smith. Uh, so Kevin has a blog about his own foraging adventures, uh, which is countrymanforager.blogspot.com. Um, and he has a YouTube, like a wild cooking YouTube channel as well. Like he'll go diving and catch a fish and then cook that fish in a canoe what? with lots. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Like he really knows his stuff. And also like he's he's kind of a, a food a food guy, too. So we'll link to, to those in the show notes. Um, but I always, you know, I've always been super interested in foraging. Like I always if I go on a hike, I always play like, could I survive here? Like I know how to build a lean to. Oh, yeah, well. When I was little, um, we, well, we had a book of wild edible plants. Yeah, me too. Like native to West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Well, mine was, mine was Connecticut. Yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, so I, I'd like to think that I could survive with just like a pocket knife and a trash bag. Oh, that's all well, you, you need. You had a trash bag, man. Well, that keeps you warm <laughs> or something. Or something. <laughs> or you can make a sweet music video. <laughs> Missy, it's a timely reference. Missy no, Elliott. timeless reference. I think. Yeah, 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 that's the one. All right. Well, since I am currently in California, uh, I was specifically drawn Greg. to an interview with Hillary Rennick, an enrolled member of the Sherwood Valley Band of Pomo Indians, and she serves as tribal historic preservation officer for the Sherwood Valley Rancheria. She says in this interview, "Quote." Coast Pomo people have relied upon and subsisted off of the ocean's bounty for countless generations. On some beaches, we harvest seaweed and kelp, and on other beaches, we harvest abalone, mussels, and other seafood. Surf smelt spawn on the gravel beaches where we catch them with traditional dip nets. Some of the creeks that empty into the ocean are great places to catch salmon and other fish. Like other tribes, we historically had first food ceremonies to give thanks for the sacred foods that sustained and nourished our families for millennia. In the spring, we have strawberries, medicinal roots and shoots, <laughs> roots and shoots, trout, salmon, eels, and other fish. In the summer, we have an abundance of wild celery, carrots, onions, potatoes, plums, and large game. In the fall, we gather acorns. For our area, we have all varieties of acorns, but prefer the taste of the tan oaks. In the winter, we hunt deer, quail, and rabbit, as well as feast on dried meat, acorn mush, and other high-calorie foods to get us through the winter. Angelica and sunflower roots are the most common healing plants in our area. We boil the roots, chew them, or burn them for protection and prayer. There are different kinds of Indian doctors. Some prepare teas and poultices, while others read the plants that grow around your house to see what Mother Nature is trying to bring to you. Other Indian doctors provide counsel and will provide spiritual guidance and solace to your soul. But she also cautions, quote, Harvesting, preparing, and collecting traditional foods and plants can be difficult now because of the property regime. Landowners historically haven't allowed Indian people to enter their land to gather medicines or foods. Because our land was and is coveted, most of our gathering areas are off-reservation and access can be dangerous. Some of the medicines, teas, and basketry materials grow in riparian areas, which is along riverbanks, or close to the road, and herbicide poisoning is a real danger. Mm. And she also says, 
Quote, there is always the federal-state tribal balancing that tribal people must navigate. The most immediate concern is state regulation of fishing and hunting. We are the original landowners and aren't the ones that poach or overharvest, but state moratoriums and limits prevent many of our tribal members from accessing traditional foods. Our region had rich biodiversity and abundance, partly because of our native use resource management, never taking more than we need and asking for prayers and guidance. Thanking the food source, the tree, the roots, honoring the air, singing the the water songs. It's these things that provide for us at the very basic level that are so important. With the threats of accelerated climate change and development projects, it makes passing on traditional knowledge so much more important. End quote. So that brings up the idea of food sovereignty that we mentioned up top, the creation of identity through food and other aspects of culture. And we wanted to shout out some people that are tackling this issue in an extremely cool way. Um, this is a little bit of a teaser. We since hope. We've, <laughs> yeah. Um, since we've been working, get an interview scheduled with these folks. So when we say that we've, this is what we've been working on guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're just really, uh, really busy doing all really, this cool stuff. They're, they're really busy. And then, and I'm on a different coast and it's just, yep, we're doing, we're, we're trying, we'll but, get there. yeah, but in case we can't do that in the super near future, we still wanted to talk about the work that they're doing because it's hugely important. And frankly, it sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> Go drool over this website. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we're talking about Cafe Olone, a.k.a. Mak Amham, which means our food in the Ohlone language. So this is from their website. We are a Native American Ohlone-run organization that operates in our indigenous homelands. We work to revive and strengthen Ohlone foods for the wellness of our people, and we run Cafe Ohlone at University Press Books uh, slash the musical offering cafe in, and they use the Ohlone word for Berkeley. Yeah. Which is very cool, but yeah. But we're unsure how to pronounce it. Yeah. And we don't want to do it very wrong. <laughs> yeah. So in what... Google Maps will tell you is Berkeley. Yep. Um, we work to keep our cuisine and culture strong to honor those before us who loved these powerful foods and to have greater visibility for the Ohlone community that we are part of. All of our food is indigenous to California, specifically to the San Francisco and Monterey Bay areas. Local. Yeah. All of the primary ingredients Mak Amham utilizes are foods that would be recognizable and attainable in the traditional Ohlone world before contact with outside forces. We envision a full revival of Ohlone, food Ohlone Indian food traditions as part of the larger ongoing cultural restoration that empowers Ohlone people to decolonize ourselves of layers of forcibly imposed identity and return to an identity that is aligned with that of our ancestors. In order to create food that is truly Ohlone and representative of the values of our, tr our traditional cuisine upholds, we have had to reconnect with specific food traditions of our communities, both ones that are practiced by elders in our families, as well as reconnecting with older food traditions that, while not actively practiced, are preserved in ethnographic documentation recorded by our communities in, 19, in the 1920s and 1930s. Through these methods, we are able to reawaken food traditions and bring these values and foods back into our lives and homes. Through this process, we have reintroduced Ohlone dietary laws to ourselves and our communities. We know for certain that there are foods our ancestral communities did not eat before contact with outsiders, some because they were forbidden, others because they simply did not exist in California before they were introduced here. We also know that there are introduced foods our people had cultural restrictions against after contact. 
All of our food stays as close as possible to the standards of our old ways of eating. Our food is full of power and our food dispels stereotypes. Our food connects us to those we love and to our land, which we also love. By eating, cherishing, and respecting these old foods and fully embracing our Ohlone culture, we honor our identities and the people we come from. So hopefully we can bring you more from these folks too and and talk to the people behind it. But in the meantime... Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like reading this, you know, it makes, hopefully it makes sense to our listeners why we wouldn't just want to do this research and kind of report on it. Like we want their voices. Yeah. Not just ours. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But so this is, yeah. yeah. And so um, in the meantime, if you're in the Berkeley area, Berkeley, California area, or you're nearby, go Uh, check them out. Um, Or at least go to their website, which we will have on our show notes because they have photos of their food and it's so pretty. Yeah. And they also, um, they have a blog that runs along with it. And Mm -hmm. so the way, Mm -hmm. so it's a pop-up. So if you do know Berkeley. It's um, Musical Offering is a cafe that's right off campus there at the University Press Bookstore. Mm-hmm. And so they do a pop-up where um, if you want to go, they they do like afternoon weekend, teas and things. Yeah. And like weekend can, tasting menus, I think. Yeah. And so the, like with their tasting menus and their like um, set menus, you have to reserve in advance. And like what's very cool is that they're selling out way in advance. So if you um, are around there or if you are planning a a road trip or other trip maybe factor that on in maybe factor that on in yeah yum 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 yes we really want to have more from them hopefully very soon yeah we will work on that yeah um and in the meantime we'll have a quick ad break and then we'll be right back This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. And we're back. We did it. And I want to welcome you all into Science Corner. I almost said Sinus Corner. That's not right. Ew. That was us a few weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. My, the corner of the 16th, the, the sixth floor of the Brookfield building has been Sinus Corner. Huh. <laughs> oh, man. So <laughs> I want to uh, welcome you all into Science Corner. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about some of the different methods that archaeologists can use to figure out aspects of food gathering and diet in the past. So we've already mentioned ceramics and cookware. That's a big one. Often some ceramic wares or even metal vessels will have a very particular shape that is linked to their function. Think of the shape of a wok meant to get screamingly hot with plenty of room to move what you're cooking quickly. That's 
the reason a stir fry cooks so quickly. It's very, very hot. Um, or the shape of a ceramic tagine with a high conical top that collects condensation and keeps your food nice and juicy while you cook it slowly. Archaeologists can try to associate form to function, although granted that's sometimes just educated guessing. There are also tools like grinding stones, mortars and pestles, manos and matates, similar things all over the world because similar preparations are needed for lots of different foods. We've also talked before on the show about residue analysis. If vessels found at an archaeological site are well enough preserved, they might still have traces of their original contents. Those can be analyzed using something like mass spectrometry. It basically creates a chemical fingerprint of a sample that can then be matched to other known samples. Uh, and I think we covered residue analysis in a very early episode on wine and cheese. Is that mm-hmm. what that was? I, yeah. and, uh, and it was that and then the bread others. episode. Yes, that's right. Bread episode. Um, good job. Thanks. Uh, so um, here's an example from a 2019 article in the journal Quaternary Research. Quote, molecular and chemical analysis of carbonized re- residues found on the surfaces of vessels confirmed that these artifacts were used to process marine resources. This is, um, incidentally, this is an article about um processing of marine mammals in Aleut communities in, off the, in the Aleutian Islands. So continuing, uh, both artifacts have high lipid content, fat, and CN ratios, so carbon to nitrogen ratios, suggesting that they were used to process oily substances. Integration of these results with archaeological and ethnographic data leads us to infer that griddle stones were used for cooking a diversity of aquatic resources, possibly with the addition of plant foods, whereas stone bowls were specifically used to render marine mammal fats. We further hypothesize that a sudden peak in stone bowl frequencies at around 4,000 to 3,000 years ago was connected to a neoglacial cold spell bringing sea ice conditions to the Aleutian Islands. This may have led to new subsistence strategies in which the rendering of marine mammal fats played a central role. So it might have gotten real cold and fats may have been a really crucial part of the diet because first of all, you can burn them. They provide heat, but also they are super high in calories. So... So that we can burn them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, We've also got animal bones and plant remains to consider. And so for more on animal bones, you can check out our Funna with Fauna episode. And for plant remains, stay tuned. Hint, hint. And lastly, some compiled research from the State Museum of Pennsylvania about the local foodways during different time periods. But also, it's worth noting that we've really only talked about a couple geographic areas in this episode. Um, Indigenous groups lived throughout the whole of what is now the U.S. and Canada. And of course, their diets and food culture varied along with their environment. So if you want to learn more about the local groups and foods from your area, a local museum, or a member of a local tribal group might be a good place to start. Just of course, remember to always be respectful when you ask your questions. And so, that's, this is just specifically about North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, there are indigenous yeah. populations elsewhere in the world, of course. But um, this is this episode centers on North America. Yeah. yeah. OK, so um, specifically, though, in Pennsylvania um, and this these are periods that are sort of, of course, retrospectively assigned Based, you know, by archaeologists based on material culture and, and the archaeological evidence. So it's not like these people flipped over a calendar and went, aha, it is now the archaic period. We better change our stuff. No, it's <laughs> these are, you know, these are these are designations that are created way after the fact. Just 
always, I, I always tell my students to be mindful of this because it's not necessarily something that people think about. So, all right. So we're in Pennsylvania. The first period that we're going to discuss is the Paleo-Indian period, which is 16,000 to 10,000 years ago, give or take. When Native Americans first arrived in Pennsylvania, glaciers covered the northern part of the Commonwealth. It wasn't a Commonwealth at the time. Towards the end of this period, temperatures averaged 10 degrees colder than today. Vegetation was generally an open spruce forest with a few broad-leafed trees, such as oaks, along major streams and rivers. Hunting a variety of large and small game and fishing probably provided at least 60% of the diet. Spear points, knives, and choppers for butchering animals and scrapers for cleaning hides are the most common tools. In the northern part of the state, there's evidence of the hunting of migratory caribou. In the southern part of the state, general foraging, salute general foraging, in the form of gathering seeds, nuts, berries, roots, and fishing was more common. People generally lived in small family bands of less than four families, so about 15 people. Periodically, they may have met to form larger groups, um, especially when hunting caribou. Although the overall quantity, sorry, I had a moment of like, does that say quality? No. Although the overall quantity of food in this environment was low, the human population was also small, allowing them their choice of foods, which were the easiest to collect. Okay, so next we move on to the archaic period. So flip those calendars over 10,000 to 4,300 years ago. During this period, the climate warmed and broad-leafed trees filled the forests. A wide variety of nut-bearing trees like walnut, hickory, butternut, and oaks, seed-producing grasses, edible roots, and berries became available. Along with a variety of mammals like deer, beaver, bear, and rabbit, birds like turkey and ducks, and fish like Atlantic sturgeon, shad, and Atlantic salmon, what? there was a... What? Shad? Shad. It's a fish. It's a white-fleshed fish. You can use it for chowder and stuff. There was a huge increase in the quantity of foods available to humans. That's a w- weird way to say that. Foods available to humans, <laughs> says robot. A wide variety of tools, such as axes, adzes, and the atlatl, the spear thrower that we've mentioned before in previous episodes, grinding stones, net sinkers, harpoons, and fish hooks were developed to exploit these resources. Bands of people fluctuated in size at this time, depending on the foods being harvested. Towards the end of the archaic period, there are indications that Native Americans began to focus on seed plants and may have been growing squash in small gardens to supplement their diet. The transitional and early woodland periods span from 4,300 to 2,100 years ago. This began as a warm and dry period, which caused periodic food shortages. It ended as generally a warm and wet period and included the spread of chestnut trees in the Pennsylvania forest. Native American families continued to eat a wide variety of mammals, birds, fish, roots, seeds, nuts, and berries. Some of these foods, such as red oak, acorns, and seed plants, required more work to process, and this suggests that families were working harder at subsistence. And I have a link here that we can add to the show notes that's like acorn recipes and how to process your acorns, in case you want to try doing that. You have to do a lot to an acorn to make it edible. Yeah, you do. It's a lot of work. Anyway, trade with other groups was common, and there are indications that families were organized differently to efficiently exploit a variety of resources. 
Carved stone bowls were used to increase the efficiency of processing foods during the transitional period, an indication that Native American populations were growing beyond the carrying capacity of the environment. Clay pottery was introduced at the end of the transitional period and suggests that families were more sedentary. In addition, it is believed that they were increasingly cultivating plants in small gardens such as squash, little barley, <laughs> knotweed, and lamb's quarter. This was the beginning of farming in... Knotweed? 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 It, it is weed. I mean, it is a weed. Cannot I'm weed. very, I'm very familiar with knotweed because it is oh. specifically the bane of my mother's gardening existence. Oh. <laughs> There's like a huge patch of it in their yard that just will not die. <laughs> um, this was the beginning of farming in Pennsylvania, and it probably significantly changed family organization. It so sounds like, like it has with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> the division of labor is clear. My mother rages against the knotweed. My dad calmly hires someone to <laughs> to come with a, a mowing machine and deal with it. It's edible, too. Have you told your mom? Yes. She doesn't Repeatedly. Care. I was like, you can pickle it. She's like, I want to kill it. <laughs> she fires up the flamethrower. <laughs> my God, my sweet little mom. Lastly, we've got the middle and late woodland period uh, which is 2,100 to about 400 years ago. Garden farming became common in middle woodland times when the focus was on seed plants that inclu included lamb's quarter, again, knotweed, little barley, and squash, so those same plants. Gardens became larger and corn was added to the subsistence system. Eventually, along with beans, corn became the dominant food source and contributed up to 75% of the diet. A variety of other wild plants and animals were also eaten. At this time, the type of farming that people practiced is called Sweden, or slash-and-burn agriculture. So this involved clearing the forest by burning down trees and planting crops in their ashes. And ashes are very high in, in nutrients for plants. So it's in theory, it's a good thing. But um, they didn't have fertilizers, per se. And within five years, the nutrients in the soils were depleted, requiring clearing of new fields. Within 15 years, all the fields near the village, um, specifically the villages described by this museum exhibit that I pulled this from, were depleted and the entire village was moved. Sweden farming required constant planning, clearing of new fields, and eventually building new villages. And then um, shortly after this period is the, the point of contact with European colonizers, and then things took quite a turn. So... While it is a vast generalization, this pattern of gradual change and intensification of food resource use that we see in Pennsylvania is one that happens in lots of different places. Yes, in the Americas, but also all over the world. The more people you have, you know, as, as you successfully gather food, your family group might become bigger. As your local groups become bigger, they put more of a strain on the environment, which means that sometimes you see intensifying of local food resource use. But sometimes you also see the gradual development of things like resource management, which gradually leads to agriculture. So things like um Specifically here, again, in California, there's evidence that indigenous groups exploiting um, pinion pines, so the, mm -hmm. they, they ate the pine nuts, um, they would burn uh, pinion pine groves, not to destroy the trees, but to clear the underbrush that was kind of, could choke out the, the pinion trees. Mm -hmm. And um, it also kind of encouraged, I believe it encouraged the trees to first of all, produce more pine cones and also drop them um, so that yeah. they can then um, process the the pine cones for the nuts inside. So again, yeah. something that is a lot of work for 
seemingly a little reward. But pine nuts are delicious. Delicious. And they're really, really, really calorie dense. Yeah. They're yeah. So you get you get bang for your buck, but still it's they're yeah. so tiny. And last up this week is a delightful tale about a little tater making a comeback. Ugh. A little <laughs> little potato that could. And, and did. Um, and this is by Sarah Ventiara, writing for medium.com. A few years ago, starch granules from a dime-sized potato were found on 10,000-year-old stone tools at an archaeological site at Escalante, Utah. Researchers say the speckled brown spud, scientifically known as Solanum jamesy. Jamesy eye? Jamesy eye. I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Jamesy. Jamesy. It's it's James. It's somebody named James found yep, it. It's that's James's potato. It yep. Okay. Is <laughs> the earliest documented potato to be consumed in North America. It could also be the first example of potato domestication, maybe even predating the Andean potato, which would make it the oldest domesticated spud in the world. I I have potato domesticated myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> There's now an effort underway to bring the so-called four corners potato back to its place of prominence. Which is funny because it's round. Mm. <laughs> you love it. Cynthia Wilson, director of the traditional foods program for Utah Dine Bukea, a Native American-led nonprofit, is working with potato researchers to restore the tuber's widespread cultivation among indigenous tribes. Between 2004 and 2008, archaeologists from Brigham Young University unearthed 196 ground stone tools, including manos and matates, um, which is, she hopefully writes, essentially a pestle and mortar, mm -hmm. uh, from North Creek Shelter, an ancestral Puebloan dwelling in Escalante, and the oldest known site of human habitation on the northern Colorado Plateau. When archaeologist Elizabeth Blauterbach began her dissertation research on the human dietary changes over time at one specific site, she looked to the artifacts collected at the shelter. She started her quest by scouring through the remnants of cooking hearths and fire pits, searching for macro botanicals, food items like seeds and fruits that can be seen with the naked eye. She found a bunch of charcoal and other organic material, but no food. Mm -hmm. Oh, I guess they didn't eat. <laughs> They were, was it air, Aritarians? They were, they were, they were breatharians. <laughs> that's the yeah, breatharians. That's, that's right. <laughs> um, forced uh -huh. to change tactics, Louderback uh, decided to try a fairly new technique to analyze starch grains of microbotanicals, plant residue that cannot be seen without a microscope, scraped from the nearly 200 manos and matates pulled from the site. She was stumped by what she found. She said, quote, I didn't know what these grains were. They looked like potato starch. Turns out they were exactly that. Generally found just an inch or two beneath the ground, these tubers, about the size of a marble, are so waxy that they emerge with little to no dust or dirt when pulled from the soil. Newer spuds can be white or pink, but morph into a brownish color as they age. Numerous little eyes that can produce new shoots lend a pattern of tight-knit polka dots. Hey, do you know why potatoes are called spuds? I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking. No. Okay. Just wondering. Do you want me to look it up? Yeah. Well, I mean, we can, we can, <laughs> we can look that up later okay. and put it on social media and be like, ah, relevant information. <laughs> I do like that you said, yeah. 
Researchers have since found populations of Four Corners potatoes at ancestral sites across the region, from Grand Staircase and Bears Ears in Utah to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico and Mesa Verde in Colorado, which points to the idea that the spuds may very well have been cultivated and moved by indigenous people who lived in the area before the European conquest. According to oral tradition, some of the Dine who were forced to relocate packed seeds and drop them along the way so that they would have food to help find their way home. Um, Cynthia Wilson, the traditional foods director mentioned earlier, said, quote, I think part of the reason why the potato has been spread through the four corners is because the seeds were really important to the people. Yeah, it's like yeah. Johnny Appleseed, but potato. Yeah, but I think Johnny Appleseed was sort of on the other side of this equation. Oh, very much in terms of his, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, I meant the process, not the person. (laughs) Uh, So that is hopefully a tantalizing little appetizer for what we hope will be a conversation or series of conversations with actual experts and members of indigenous communities. We always prefer to provide platforms for people. That was an extremely alliterative sentence. We always prefer to provide platforms for people who know what they're talking about. So- Io and Alan, we hope you enjoyed this first installment. Thank you again, Io, for your support and for suggesting this topic. And bonus, we have a book club recommendation. And that is the uh, Mitsitsum Cafe Cookbook by Richard Hetzler. And these are recipes from the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Um, I The my cafe? Local, the cafe. Is so good because yeah. they serve these recipes yeah so um i my local library has a copy but it was out when i Aww. went this weekend i know I was like, well thwarted. you know what you can do what? you can just come here and then we'll go oh great to the museum of the american indian well that sorts that out and we'll eat the food and then we can pick up a copy all your own yes. in the gift shop yes 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 good okay great Pencil now that in. we got that sorted thanks everybody for listening yay we will be back in your ears soon with more episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google mm. Play, and most other pod machines. In the meantime, you can find us online at Facebook, at The Dirt Podcast, Twitter, at, at Dirt Podcast, <laughs> and on the gram, at, at The Dirt Pod. Yep. And all of that and all our episodes and... Our sweet, sweet merch are at thedirtpod.com. And you can also support us on a monthly basis, if you like, at a number of affordable tiers at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. And, 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 you can support us non-monetarily by leaving reviews and stars on Apple Podcasts and all those other pod platforms. Please and thank you. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.